we are um, definitely, we have reached a turning point, I believe, at least in my life. I know I have um, as I lead this church and as um, we go forward with the direction we're going. And just to catch some of you up, we've been in the midst of a series called Pivot, uh, where we're looking at kind of a renewed commitment to our mission statement and aligning all of our resources around that. Um, We talked about what it means to grow in faith, what it means to serve people. And then last week, we were supposed to cover um, the together part. And I I shared with you that I had a hard time cramming everything in one sermon. There were literally five texts that I've discovered, and there's probably more. Um, There were five texts that I discovered that I really felt like needed to get a hearing. And yet, if I were to keep you here for five texts in one Sunday, most of you would just leave and go eat halfway through, and I'd be standing here probably by myself. So I decided rather than do that, we're going to stretch these out. So this is Together Part 2. Uh, We're moving forward. Now, last week we talked from a passage from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and we talked about how he prayed for us to be one as he and the Father are one. So just as the Father and the Son have unity, so Jesus prayed for his followers and for those that would come to know him through his followers to be one in the same way. He prayed that we would be so united, so uncharacteristically, unnaturally united that our unity would become the evidence that Jesus was who he says he was. That that, that that unity that is so out of character for people in our world would literally give credibility to the gospel because it's so unusual and so awesome. And, and I believe we need that. And we talked uh, to a large degree about the power of um, together. And I actually received a couple of text messages and, and some shares this week, more examples of some together kind of moments. How many of you watched the Super Bowl last week? Raise your hand if you watched the Super Bowl. How many of you watched it just for the commercials? Raise your hand if you watched just for the commercials. How many of you watched it just because you want to see Mass, Matt Stafford succeed? Raise your hand. How many of you wanted to see him fail? Raise your hand. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just messing around. Uh, There was a commercial. Before I even got to where I was watching the Super Bowl, Mark over here sends me a text. That went perfectly with your sermon. I'm like, I didn't see it. What was it? And he, he texted me back later and said it was a Toyota commercial. And there was this really cool Toyota commercial, and they were sharing the story of these two brothers, the McKeever brothers, and the one is a cross-country skier who competes in the Paralympics, even though he's basically blind, like he can only see like shapes in motion, he can't really see anything. And his brother has been for years training with him kind of as his sight guide, and so he would follow his brother and listen to the sound of his voice. I don't even know how it all works, but the two of them together competed in the Paralympics and, and will be again. Again, what an incredible example, just kind of like the one that I shared last week about what it means to do things together. And then, of course, I had another person send me a a Facebook uh, post about a choir that gets together in the same place every year, this huge choir, I don't know how many hundred voices, but they stay in the same hotel for this conference. And years ago, somebody started this weird tradition. They would all, it was one of those hotels that's open in the middle, you know how, and you walk out your room and there's like a balcony and you can see all of the floors. It was like, I don't know how many floors, probably 10 or 12 at least. And there's these, you know, this circular balcony all the way around with all these people standing outside their rooms. And basically somebody just threw down a pitch And everybody else started finding that pitch, and then they sang the star-spangled banner, like just impromptu, without planning it, and it just erupted in the middle of this giant cavernous space that is this hotel. I mean, how cool was it? It's awesome. It's on my Facebook um, wall. You can look at it there if if you're friends with me. If you're not friends with me, send me a friend request. 
I'll evaluate your credentials and then we'll talk. Anyway, I'm just kidding. So anyway, but it was awesome because now every year after that, they just, they're all, every night they're out there all gathering and at some point during their stay, someone will throw that pitch out there, throw a pitch out there and they'll all start harmonizing and then someone will just start singing and they sing the, nas- the national anthem um, just, you know, impromptu. It's so cool. And, and the tag note on the end of the video was this. As a nation, we're not soloists. We do harmony. We're not soloists. We do harmony. What a great message for a people that desperately needs to be united. I shared with you that our unity, that unity in our culture today is kind of hard to find. In fact, it's very easy to be divided today. And (laughs) there was actually an ad in the Super Bowl that demonstrated that as well. It was what I consider to be one of the funniest commercials. Did any of you see the Planters Nuts, the Mixed Nuts commercial? where the guys are arguing over where you're supposed to eat the nuts one at a time or whether you're supposed to eat a handful at a time, and they send out a tweet, and instantly the world goes into chaos over the whole argument and debate. I'm like, unfortunately, that's America right now. It just, you know, all it takes is one tweet to throw us over the edge. Hopefully, hopefully we're healing from that. Hopefully we're becoming less like that. But here's the opportunity. The opportunity is for us to be so united as a church that the world around us wonders why it is that we are the way that we are. And then we get the opportunity to tell them that it's because of our Savior. And so unity is not only something that we need. Together is not only something that, that can help us. It is a mandatory thing, I believe, in the kingdom of God. And together has power. Today is the second um, of the scriptures that I want to deal with. And so I want to share this with you. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a book that a not, a, a, not a lot of people read. Although there's a passage that I'm going to read in a moment that you'll probably recognize, but it's one that not a lot of people read through. It's in the portion of the Bible, kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament, that we call wisdom literature. In other words, it's with the poetry. It's kind of with Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and some of those other ones because it's very poetic in the way that it talks. But let me just share with you that this book called Ecclesiastes is actually, um, we, don't, we don't know for sure who wrote it. Most people believe it was Solomon. In the text itself, it calls the person who's essentially telling the story Kohelet in, in the Hebrew, which literally translated means the preacher. So this is a man who was intending to declare what he has learned over the years of his life. Now, it, it's very evident from the text that whoever wrote this book had means. They were wealthy. They had the ability to go wherever they wanted to go and do whatever they wanted to do, and there were very few limitations on what they could do. And so what this person did was spend a lifetime observing humanity and observing God's work in the world and then wrote down a bunch of observations about what is important in life and what is nothing but vanity or emptiness. And so that's kind of a framework within, you can kind of check this out. Most of us believe it was Solomon that wrote it. Of course, as is always the case, modern scholars, oh, it probably wasn't. It probably was. The, there was there's not nearly enough evidence, in my opinion, to give it to anybody else. So as far as we're concerned, Solomon probably wrote it. Anyway, let me share this text with you. And again, you'll probably recognize at least a portion of this from the last wedding ceremony you were at. Verses, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. By the way, I'm reading this in the New American Standard Bible. Most of you are used to the New Living Translation. If that's what you've got, bear with me. Sometimes 
in the translation, there's something that doesn't quite go over. And the New American Standard is the closest to the actual Hebrew and Greek, in my opinion, that we have. And so I'm reading that out of there just to make sure that we be precise about the meaning today. He says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can, over, can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I want to start with uh, verses 7 and 8 because they kind of preface this. It's kind of a, a section that's in two sections. And we're going to call this conversation about verses 7 and 8 just a, a brief word to the workaholic. How many of you are workaholics? Raise your hand if you're a self-proclaimed workaholic. Wow, first service, we literally had people pointing at each other when I, I asked that question. How rude is that, right? You know, just, well, he is, she is, they all are. Anyway, this, basically this passage describes a scenario, a person, if you will, that Kohelet, the preacher, had seen throughout his years. Now, from the way it's worded, it, it leads me to believe that he's seen this many times. And, and if you stick around long enough, it's true that there really is nothing new under the sun, and you will see things over and over again. But he's describing a scenario where this person has no one depending on him. He has no son. He has no brother. The women in the family are not really mentioned as would have been the tradition back then. Again, I'm not advocating that. They simply were a lot of times left out, unfortunately. But he has essentially no one to work for. And a lot of times when we in our modern era are, are workaholics and we try to put all of our time and effort into making money or, or working harder or getting that promotion and, and we, we put everything we have into a job, a lot of times our rationalization is, well, I'm doing this to supply for my family. I'm doing this so that we get the raise for my family. I'm doing this so my family has more money so we can take the vacations, which we ironically have no time to take at that point. So we rationalize by the people that we're providing for. This person doesn't have that excuse. He's all alone. He's by himself. We don't know why. Maybe by his choice. Maybe because he's a workaholic. Who knows? He has no one with him. And yet the preacher brings out the fact that he seems obsessed with working and working and working, even though there's no one there to receive the inheritance after he's gone. And basically what Kohelet says is this man is essentially neglecting the pleasures of life. And, and if you read through the text, that often means he, he wasn't taking time to enjoy the things in life that are truly important. So if you're an al uh, alcoholic, workaholic, uh, this advice won't apply to the other one, I'm sorry. If you're a workaholic, let me caution you that working for the sake of work and gaining wealth for the same of, sake of gaining wealth is a never-ending struggle. Because if you look at what he says here, he says in, in verse 8, um, he, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. You see, when you start working to make more money, 
It's a never-ending cycle that is similar, ironically, to things like gambling, which completely deplete you of your money. Because you can never have enough. You ask any millionaire out there, there might be a few today that have seen enough press releases to know to answer this the right way. But if you really look at somebody who has a lot of money, chances are pretty good if you ask them if they have enough, most of them will say what? Say, no, just a little more, right? I mean, I'm making more money, or there have been times in my life where I was making more money than I ever had before, and it was never enough. You know why? Because the more you make, I figured somebody would finish my sentence for me right there, the more you spend. And the more you make, the more you want. The more you spend, the more you need, the more you have to make. It's a vicious cycle. Don't let it take you. Because that in and of itself is one of the things that contributes to people being alone. How many marriages have been wrecked or how many children have walked away from, from parent, parental figures because their, their parents spent all of their time working and never did things with them, never spent the time on them. And so the caution is simply to the workaholic, be careful that you don't end up alone. As he continues the conversation, he throws out this great verse in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Let me remind you that in Genesis, the first part of Genesis, during the creation, God looked at man in the garden and said what? It is not good for the man to be alone. This is echoing that sentiment. It is not good for a person to be by themselves. If you have more than one, they have a better return for their labor. Now, it almost sounds like that's aimed a little bit at the guy he just got done describing. You know, if you would have worked together with somebody, you could have amassed the same amount of wealth, maybe in a more efficient length of time, and you actually would have some companionship then to share that with. But I think he's actually launching forward. So let's look at what comes next. What comes next is three scenarios that make it, that they're essentially proof that two are better than one. The first one is if either of them falls, the other one is there to lift them up. How many have ever seen that commercial where the little old lady says, I've fallen and I can't get up? I think my generation made fun of that more than we should have. We really did. I mean, every time I would fall down in high school, I'd, I've fallen and I can't get up, you know, and she pushes the little, what was that, life alert? Oh, I don't want to drop, you know, the, they should pay me now because I just advertised for them or something. Anyway, it was this great commercial, but my, my generation, man, we thought that was the funniest commercial ever, and so we would mimic that poor old lady. That was really thoughtless of us, wasn't it? We were terrible people. I don't know. But anyway, falling down... Not really as big of a risk as it used to be. Unless you happen to be someone who lives alone and is all by yourself and have no way to call for help. And that's what that commercial was essentially demonstrating. Listen, there are older people in our society that maybe have lost loved ones. Maybe no one lives with them anymore. They're all by themselves. And there have been cases where people fell and weren't able to get up. And so they literally laid on the floor for days waiting for someone to come discover them. So it's a good product, I guess. It's a good thing. But honestly, in, in most of our lives, on an everyday basis, if we fall down, what do we do? We just call somebody, right? We have phones. Um, how many of you carry your phone with you everywhere you go, even at your house? Now, there's probably a lot of you that do that. I find myself doing that. I try to set it down, but then what happens if, you're, you, know, if you fall down? So you, know, you should carry it with you. you know. The other use, of course, is if you're in the bathroom and you need toilet paper. I shouldn't have said that out loud. I apologize. It's a good use for that. Um, I, I have gotten texts from my children in that situation. I'm just going to say that. They have texted me, I need TP. Of course, you go get it for them. Anyway, it's not as dangerous today as it used to be. Nor is there really a fear of us 
growing cold. The only time I'm ever cold in today's society is when I'm watching my children play sports in the early spring or the late fall. Can I get a witness, all you lacrosse, football, baseball parents? It's just, you freeze to death out there. That's the only time I really worry about being cold. So, so there's three scenarios here that he essentially brings up. If a person falls, someone will help them. If a person is out in the middle of the wilderness overnight, the warmth that can come from another body can help keep them warm. And again, there's nothing in the text to imply a marital relationship or anything like that. It's simply the reality that back then, they would mostly carry what, what the clothes on their back, and their outer cloak would become their blanket when they laid down down to go to sleep at night if they were out in the wilderness traveling or whatever. And oftentimes, if people traveled with companions, they would take all of their outer garments, put them together, and they would lay under them to save warmth. When I was a kid, growing up, my brother and I used to do this. Our house, my dad used to keep our house cold anyway, but he had a wood-burning um, boiler, and about like 2 a.m., that thing would run out of fire, and by 6 a.m., it was usually 55 degrees in our house. Every single morning, we would wake up to that, and we would run to the fireplace where my mom would have a fire built trying to warm us up as we got ready. But let me tell you, when you're cold in the middle of the night, it feels awful good to be back-to-back to your brother, amen? It's just one of those things you do when you learn how to survive, and that's what they did. And so we don't really have issues with that anymore. In fact, going a step further, I believe that this is actually anti-marriage, this part right here. Because I got to tell you that since I started having, you know, sleeping in the same bed as this woman over here, that I'm usually colder when I get to bed than I am before I get to bed because her feet are about 30 degrees. Did anybody else have that issue? Your spouse's feet are 30 degrees and they will not keep them off of you. As soon as I get in the bed, there they go, right on my legs. I'm like, whoa, stop it. And it chills. Your whole body is now cold because of that. She should be ashamed of herself. Make the house warmer, she says. Yeah, okay. Anyway, the funny part is after about 10 minutes under the cover, she puts off as much heat as a 10,000 BTU furnace, man. I'm like throwing covers off. It's crazy how much heat they put off. Anyway, this has nothing to do with it. Their, their analogies may seem to fall short today because we're very seldom in these situations. We don't generally fall down without the ability to get up. We're not usually out in the cold needing someone's body heat to stay warm. We're not generally at danger of being attacked. I mean, certainly there are dangers in our society. There are people who would do us harm. But when we travel, we usually do so in cars, which, quite frankly, keep us pretty safe most of the time. And and if not a car, some of us carry other protections, other technology that we have learned to use as protection from our cell phones right down to to knives or maybe even a, a pistol or a gun if you use that. So we've created technology that keeps us safe and out of most of these circumstances. So maybe, just maybe, we'd be tempted to think that we don't need each other quite as much as maybe they used to. I think that's incorrect. I don't agree with that assessment. In fact, I think today we need each other even more. I think what we've done is we've taken technology and replaced friendship and relationship with technology in a lot of times. You know, we, some of us are more in love with our cars than we are with our friends. Some of us are more in love with our gun collection than we are with the people in our family. Some of us love our things more than we love the people around us, and we need to be careful of that. Because honestly, especially now, when most of us are relating to each other more through the computer and the phone and the tablet than we are face-to-face in person, 
Sometimes we have a tendency to fall in love with the medium and not the person on the other end of that medium. I said this months ago because I heard somebody smart say it, and I'm going to say it again. We should always love people and use things. We should never love things and use people. Does that make sense? But sometimes our relationships get complicated when we have all of this technology around us. Now, I'm not against it. I'm not going to stop driving my car. Not going to do that. What I'm saying is we need to be careful that because of the technology we have, we don't write off relationships because especially in our spiritual lives, I believe we need each other. In a spiritual sense, if not in a physical sense, these three challenges, these three demonstrations of why we need each other fit. Because there are times, my friend, when in a spiritual sense, you know, physically you may not fall down and not be able to get up, but there are certainly times in our lives where spiritually we fall down and we are unable to get up. Am I right? There have been times in my life where I fell down spiritually. I did the wrong thing or I had the wrong attitude or maybe um, I had the wrong thoughts going through my head. And you get to a place where you're kind of in a funk and it's a tough place to get out of unless you have someone to come alongside of you and say, you know, listen, I'm going to help you up. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to crawl with you. I'm going to do whatever it takes. We'll get through this together. And thankfully, I married a woman who does that on a regular basis. She's always there for me and and always my constant companion who gets me out of those funks if I get in them. But I'm here to tell you, if you have never fallen down spiritually, you will. And you will need someone there beside you to lift you up. For some of us, we need warmth. You know, the Bible uses the analogy when you first accept Jesus, uh, there's a deep fire that burns within you. And in fact, in John and Revelation, um, one of the churches gets chastised for the fact that they had lost their first love, that the fire that once burned within them didn't burn that way anymore, and they were called lukewarm. There aren't many things that I like lukewarm. And the Bible actually says that God is ready to spew this church out of his mouth because of their lack of fire for him. Listen, there comes a time when all of our spiritual lives, using the analogy of fire, kind of cool. They, they, they kind of cool off a little bit, and maybe the flame dies a little bit. And in those moments, it's imperative to have people around us who have a fire that is still burning bright so that we can catch that fire. One of the things I love about the fire analogy is that when you put fire close to something flammable, it starts to burn, doesn't it? And if you take a small flame and put it near a bigger flame, it immediately grows. And friends, that's what uh, people can do for our faith when we're waning in our heat, when we're waning in our light, when our light isn't shining maybe like it should. We can come close to someone else whose light is shining bright and build our light. And so in that sense, we need each other. What about this last one? I don't know about you, but we definitely need to defend ourselves against the enemy. And there is an enemy. And I will say it as I always say it, it is not the people around you in these pews. It's not even the people around you in your society, in your workplace, in your family. It is not of flesh and blood, according to Scripture. Our enemy is the adversary who runs around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Listen, there is an enemy of your soul who is the enemy of all that is good, and he is constantly looking for opportunities to attack. And you know what he's learned over the years? He's learned that the best time to attack us is when we're by ourselves. I mean, let's be honest. Every horror movie you've ever seen has taught you this. 
right? It's the knucklehead who wanders off by himself that usually goes down. Am I right? How many of you have screamed at the TV, stay with the group? You know, it's like those commercials that talk about how stupid the people are in horror movies. It cracks me up. No, let's hide behind the wall of chainsaws. That's a great plan. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Why, why can't they make it a little more realistic? You know, there's always somebody who wanders away from the group. You know, and I just, I just say to everybody, they're gone. They're done. They're finished. They're going to die. They're done. They're over. Why? Because everybody knows this principle. When you are by yourself, you are most at risk. And that's the way it is spiritually, too. When you're walking by yourself, there there is opportunity for Satan to come in and tell you lies that you would never believe if other people were speaking into your ear, too. When you're by yourself, sometimes you have a tendency to believe things that you would never believe otherwise. You need someone to walk beside you. Listen, I believe that spiritually speaking, we need people with us. We need to find ways to walk with those who are weak, to nurture those who are broken back to health. I believe that is the truest sense of Christian community. Uh, There's a story, I I may have shared it with you before. I reshare a lot of things, I recognize that. But you know, some of you only come once, twice a month, so chances are good you might have missed it. Who knows? There's a story I read, um, it was actually an article, about a, a woman by the name of Margaret Mead, who's an anthropologist. So basically what this woman does is she goes all over the world digging up old fossils and bones to try to determine what societies looked like way back then. And she was asked one time, you know, how do you, what do you look for when you're looking for the first sign that a civilization has started to become civilized? You know, like when a group of people in a certain area started to treat each other in a way that we would classify today as maybe civilized as opposed to just more, you know, kind of animalistic or whatever. And interestingly enough, what she said was that she looks for anyone, any bone, like a femur bone especially, that had been healed, that had been broken and then healed before the person died. Apparently, you can tell that. You can tell if the femur's broken and then the person died while it was still broken, and they can tell if the femur has actually been healed. And she said that oftentimes, if she finds a a bone, a a femur, for instance, the, the long bone in the leg that has been healed before the person died, that tells her that it it was at that time that that group started to act like civilized creatures. And, and you know, someone asked her about that. Why, why a femur? We don't understand. She said, well, listen, in the animal kingdom, in the animal world, if an animal breaks its leg, nine times out of 10, that means death. Because if an animal can't hunt, it would take another animal to bring them food to help them to survive. They can't go to water, so they would probably die. They are literally sitting ducks for any creature that wants to come along and treat them as prey instead of predator. And so literally in the animal world, most animals that break their legs die because there's no one to take care of them and nurse them back to health. She said in human societies, when they come to the place where when a person breaks their leg and they nurture them back to health and healing, that's where she draws the line of civilization because that's the first sign that the community is actually caring for the ones among them who are weak and wounded. Let me tell you something. I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to learn a lesson from early man in that because there have been an awful lot of people in the church and connected to our churches and even leading our churches that fell in a hole 
Or maybe their fire went out and so they got pretty cold in their faith. Or maybe the enemy attacked and left them in ruins and the rest of the church just walked on. When I grew up, hearing about, you know, TV preachers, that was a bad word. Anybody else have that experience? You know, whenever your parents said the word, those TV preachers, that was like saying a swear word, right? Because we all knew the problems they had. Because there were this whole string when I was a kid of these TV preachers that literally had led congregations of thousands via television that had promised all these great things or done all these great miracles or whatever who had turned out to be people who were broken and fallen just like the rest of us. And what the church did in that moment was pretty much turn their backs on them and watch them die. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't have paid the price for what they did if they did something wrong, if they did something sinful, if they did something illegal. They definitely should pay the price for that. No question about it. But we as a church, we kind of left them behind. I heard a very wise person say about that whole situation one time that a lot of these people who set themselves up in these TV ministries and stuff, they never told us they were God. We told them they were God by giving them the fame and fortune that they had. And then when they proved to us that they weren't God and that they were imperfect, we crucified them all over again. Friends, that's an extreme example. But I'm here to tell you that in every church in America, there are people who have fallen in a hole spiritually. In every church in America, there are people whose fire has has almost gone out, who's losing the warmth of the Spirit of God because they just can't keep the fire burning. There are people in every congregation in America whom the devil has attacked and is ready to destroy, literally has his foot at the throat. And there are people in those same congregations who could help. I I don't know where you're at today, but I just want to kind of throw this at you. If you are one of those people that is traveling and strong and doing great, you know, you're not, you're sure-footed, you're walking the trail, and everything's going great for you, I want you to stop for a moment. And take a look around you because pretty good chance that there's somebody here this morning even that has fallen into a pit or a hole or at the very least is laying by the side of the road injured and needs someone to come alongside of them and walk with them for a time or help them up or give them the encouragement that they need to go forward. If you're one of those people who is literally just burning bright with the gospel right now and the fire, the, the, the new experience you have in Christ is so great that, man, you just when you're with people, you just tell them about Jesus and people are drawn to you because they see the passion of your faith. If you're one of those people that has a blazing fire burning within you, I want you to stop for a minute and look around this room. There may be someone here that you can see the signs of a dimming flame that they're struggling just to believe, they're struggling just to have hope, they're struggling just to go forward. And maybe you could come alongside of them and and help ignite their fire again by the fire that is in your own heart. If you're here this morning and you have seen victory over the enemy in the past, and some of you have because you shared those testimonies with me, Satan came looking and you sent him packing And that's a great way to think about it. There should be an amen there or something. We should celebrate that more. But it's happened. 
There have been times when the enemy came against this church, when the enemy came against your families, and you walked away victorious, and you're walking in victory today, and you know right where he is and how to put him in his place when he comes. I would love for you to look around this room and see somebody who's basically laying on the ground with Satan's boot on their throat. Because there are some people here that are probably in that condition. And you need to walk alongside of them or crawl alongside of them or or grab them and help them to fight him off. Friends, we need each other. If not in a physical sense, certainly in a spiritual sense, to be the people God's called us to be, we must learn how to function in a way that brings healing and strength and fire to the people around us. I believe that the greatest revivals in history hinged around this concept. Because I don't think the greatest revivals in history were because of the great preachers or the great teachers or the great music. The greatest revivals in history were revivals where people who were on fire for Jesus put their light next to somebody who wasn't, and it started a forest fire. And people went forward and made an impact on the world for Christ. I don't know where you are today. If you're in need of help, if you're fallen down or if your fire is dimming or if Satan's got you down, I would love to know that so that I can pray for you and so that I can walk beside you with it. But if you're one of those people that's riding high today, I want you to start looking for people around you that may need you to crawl with them for a while until they can learn to stand again. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, I thank you for, again, allowing us to hear some words of life from your word. Ecclesiastes is a small book with a funny name, but it teaches us a great deal about what you expect and what you have designed us for. And I believe you've designed us for relationship with each other. And more and more and more, God, it seems that in our culture today, we replace relationships with possessions or things. We find our joy not in conversations with other people, but rather in the entertainment that we watch or the cars that we drive or the boats or whatever it might be. I pray that you would help us to see the importance of together once again. And Lord, more than anything, help us to be aware. Help us to be the kind of church that is aware of of people who may not be as strong as we are and who are willing to walk beside others until they can once again become strong. And Lord, if there are people here this morning that are feeling kind of down, that are feeling like, like they're being defeated or maybe like they've fallen by the wayside, I pray that you would give them the courage just to, to let somebody know, even if it's just to say the words, I need some help, and let that be the beginning of someone coming alongside of them to walk with them until they're ready to run again. God, we just thank you for all that you've done in this church in the past and all you're gonna do in the future. Help us to live as people who love each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.